0: following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org.
1: On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, "'Surely you don't mean me.' "'It is one of the twelve, he replied, "'one who dips bread into the bowl with me. "'The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. "'But woe to that man who betray, betrays the Son of Man. "'It would be better for him if he had not been born.' "'While they were eating,' Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
0: What's the most significant meal you've ever had? Maybe you think of a first date, or a rehearsal dinner, or some epic feast on vacation, or maybe a Thanksgiving dinner. But not all meals are significant for happy reasons. Death row inmates are given one final meal, anything they wish. I I won't share some of the more eccentric examples because it's kind of morbid to think about, Uh, but you can Google it, not now, but you can Google and find articles with titles like Famous Last Meals, What Notorious Criminals Ate Before They Were Executed. In fact, Did you know that the Bible begins and ends with a meal? God's first words to man were an invitation to eat. You may eat from any tree in the garden except one. And we know how that turned out, which of course means that the Bible's first conflict was over a forbidden meal. Fast forward to the New Testament, and the very first miracle of Jesus is in response to A catering crisis at a wedding. In fact, he spent so much time at dinner parties that he was accused of being a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners. Of course, they were right about that third charge. If he wasn't a friend of sinners, we would not be here this morning. But the story of the Bible doesn't just begin with a meal. Meals aren't just woven through the story. It also ends with a meal, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the ultimate feast between Jesus and his people in glory. So it's not surprising in light of the significance of meals in our lives and in the storyline of the Bible that Christ's last one would be stuffed with so much significance. In fact, that last supper has proven to be the most pivotal meal in the history of the world. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we've moved from the triumphal entry on Sunday to the uh, cleansing of the temple and cursing of the fig tree on Tuesday to the debates with the religious leaders on Monday and Tuesday to the shocking sight of one woman's poured out devotion on Wednesday. And now we come to Thursday and all the unfolding drama of that fateful final night. Here's what I think is uh, the the main thing that, that Mark is wanting to get across to us in these verses. The main thing he's wanting to get across to us, and therefore the main thing I want to get across to you. Jesus died in our place so that we may feast on his grace. I think it's, it's that simple. Uh, there's, obviously, we, we could spend weeks and weeks looking, like, looking at a passage like this, but I think the main thrust of what is being communicated is that Jesus Christ died in our place so that we may feast on his grace. We'll think about this in three points as we make our way through Uh, First, the planning. We'll see that in verses 12 to 16. Second, the prophecy. That's verses 17 to 21. And finally, the picture. Verses 22 to 26. The planning, the prophecy, and the picture. First, the planning. Look there at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice a Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Remember, it's the most crowded week of the year in Jerusalem. The streets are swelling with Jews who have come from all parts of the Roman Empire for this annual reunion, this commemoration of God delivering them out of Egypt centuries before. And the reason they're all here gathered together on these streets this week is because God told them to be. Turn with me, you can keep your finger in Mark 14, but turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so turn almost all the way to the left. Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and the Lord has rained plague after plague after plague on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he tells Moses his plan to finally liberate the people, but the instructions are specific. Each family must secure a spotless lamb without any defects. And and here's what they've got to do. They've got to take this lamb and they've got to kill it and prepare it and cook it and eat it as a kind of last supper of sorts in Egypt. And then here's what they have to do. Here's the most important part. They've got to take the blood and paint it on the doorpost outside their house. So that that night when God arrives in judgment against their captors, he will see the blood on the doorpost and pass over. That's where the word comes from. Pass over every home that is trusting in the Lamb's blood. Trusting the Lord through the Lamb's blood. And the Lord sure enough, if you read the narrative, he kept his word and he rescued his people out of Egypt. And the Exodus became the defining moment in their history. And he never wanted them to forget it. He never wanted them to forget this defining moment. So hear the instruction he gives in Exodus 12, 17. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And then look down at verse 25. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. All right, turn back to Mark 14. I wanted to show you that because I want you to realize that Jesus is intending to obey all of these instructions from Exodus. Yes, he is a revolutionary rabbi. We've seen that on page after page, but he is first and foremost, a deeply Jewish Messiah. Even in the final hours of his life, he's not flouting the commands of Moses. He's obeying them. Verse 13, Mark 14 starting in verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That would have stood out, by the way, because typically in that culture, women were the ones carrying jars of water in public, but in a crowd, on a crowded week like this, this would have been a way for the disciples to find one particular man, follow him. Verse 14, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. The main thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is hours from death and yet is in utter control of everything that's unfolding. In chapter 11, remember, he told them exactly how they would locate a cult for him to ride into Jerusalem. And here he tells them exactly how they'll find the upper room. The sentences are saturated with sovereignty. And the reason this matters It's not just because it's making a theological point. The reason this matters is because Jesus is staring into an ominous tomorrow. And so are his disciples. They just don't know it yet. But he loves them enough to prepare them. To make sure that when they do, in the coming hours, in days, when they do step into the darkness, that they will have ringing in their ears, the sound of his sovereign voice. Oh, brothers and sisters, the application for us here is simple. When you're staring into an ominous future, not if, but when, when the clouds gather and the sky goes dark in the circumstances of your life, whose voice will be ringing in your ears? King Jesus is the great planner the great choreographer of everything that comes to pass in his universe. That scary headline, that unsettling diagnosis, that stressful relationship, that hopeless, hopeless situation. None of it is beyond his control. None of it. To quote Corey Ten Boom, who survived a Nazi concentration camp but lost four immediate family members there, There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Beloved, life in this broken world is filled with hard things. Life in this broken world is filled with sad things. But did you know this? I mean, this is honestly one of the most important things I can impress on your hearts as your pastor. Life is filled with hard things and sad things, but if you're a believer in Jesus, none of it, none of the hard things and sad things will ever make their way to you, will ever reach you without first passing through the filter of his infinite wisdom and infinite love. The Lord Jesus was sovereign and good on the final Thursday of his life, and he is sovereign and good over your life this morning. As we sang earlier, he is both strong and kind. Infinitely, gloriously, simultaneously, both strong and kind. The planning. Number two, the prophecy. The prophecy. Verse 17 When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Those three words, when evening came, are significant because a Jewish day began at sunset, which means that we are now officially stepping into one of the saddest and greatest days in the history of the world, Good Friday. And it's also significant that the Passover meal was a family meal a family meal conducted by the head of the household. Jesus is conducting this meal, which implies that he's the head of the home, which implies that the disciples are the nucleus of a brand new family that God is creating. I I wanna spell this out for a moment, just so you don't miss it, because it's pretty rare, sadly, I think in reflections on famous passages like this, to think about, this strand of application. Just bear with me. Jesus is not celebrating the Passover with his natural family, which was the custom. He's celebrating it with his spiritual family. Do do you see what this means? In the new covenant age, he is on the scene to redefine and reconstitute the people of God, the family of God around himself. Way back in chapter three, you may recall, he, remember he's inside a crowded house, he's teaching, he's ministering. Someone taps him on the shoulder and says, hey Jesus, uh, your mom and brothers are outside looking for you. Do you remember how he responds? You, you can almost hear everything in that house go silent as people expect him as a good rabbi in a family-centered culture to say, it's been a pleasure addressing you today. Uh, we'll pick it up where we left off, but, but I, I've got to go and attend to my family. But instead, a bombshell. Who are my mother and brothers? And then looking at those seated before him, this is the end of Mark 3, looking at those seated before him. do You remember what he said? Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See, in the Old Testament, membership in God's family was based on bloodline. You were born a Jew. Sure, there were ways for foreigners to enter the community, but it was fundamentally a matter of genealogy for centuries until Jesus appears and dares to claim that that era of salvation history is like a screen fading to black. He's on the scene to bring a new order, a new covenant, a new community. I will build my church. And so as we peer into the upper room, and see him presiding over the Passover, it's yet another hint, another gesture that while natural family ties are important, and they are, do not mishear me, natural family ties are important. They are not ultimate. They are superseded by the ties of Christ's family, his bloodline, which will last forever. Well, back to the meal. Maybe you've been at Thanksgiving dinner before and someone has said something. Maybe you're nervous about this happening this coming week, right? Someone has said something that is so abrupt or offensive or off the wall that it just suddenly kills the mood. Everything screeches to a halt as people stare uncomfortably at one another. That's verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. It's a shocking thing to hear in such an intimate setting. We, we don't even understand fully in our cultural context the intimacy of such a setting. In that society, eating together was a public statement of friendship and trust. And Jesus says, one of you at this table who's acting like my disciple, acting like my follower, acting like my friend is going to stab me in the back before the night's over. Verse 19, they were saddened and one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. This response is amazing to me for a couple reasons. First of all, the disciples are apparently aware enough of their own weakness that they ask honestly, is it me? Like, please don't let it be me. And brothers and sisters, we should have the humility and the self-awareness to know that apart from God's iron grip preserving us and protecting us and holding on to us, we could so easily fall. We'll think about this more in the next scene with Peter. But the other thing I find amazing about verse 19, oh, I just love this, is that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. They don't all turn and look at Judas. They have no clue who he's talking about. Now, how could that be? Think about it. The reason this is incredible is because it shows not that Judas was a great actor, though give him an Oscar, he was, okay? But that's not what's most incredible about this. What's most incredible that we can deduce from the disciples' ignorance is that Jesus, Jesus, who for three years, day and night for three years, knew Judas would betray him, hadn't treated him any differently. One of you will betray me. (laughs) It's got to be Judas because Jesus sure doesn't like him. No, not one of them says that. Not one of them picked up on that. Oh, friends, how well must Jesus have loved his own traitor for the others not to have suspected a thing? And from John, we know that Jesus even got down on the floor in the posture of a nobody, the posture of a slave, and washed Judas's feet. What's the takeaway? Well, it's an uncomfortable one, but my job is not just to give you comfortable ones. The takeaway is that the proof of authentic christianity is not just loving jesus it's also with jesus loving people like judas perhaps you've been let down by a companion ghosted ignored maybe even betrayed and at this point you're you're kind of over it even though you're not you You you, you've you've completely written that person off. You can't even bear to acknowledge their existence because of how they have let you down, betrayed your trust. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying everyone in your life is trustworthy, and you just need to start acting like they are. That would be a foolish and naive thing to say. Jesus didn't trust Judas, so that would be a terrible application from this passage. It never says Jesus trusted Judas. It's just Jesus loved him and served him anyway. In such a way, again, that no one could conclude from his treatment that Judas was the traitor. And likewise, we are called to keep serving and loving when it's hard, to keep loving and serving when it's inconvenient, to keep loving and serving when it's the last thing we want to do And to do it, not just to our friends, but also our enemies, including enemies who sometimes dress up like friends. The only reason we can do this, I mean, if if those are the marching orders, that's Daunting, and that's depressing because none of us has the the strength, none of us has the resources inside of us to love those who have wronged us, to treat people better than they deserve. But we do have the resources in the gospel of grace because the only reason we can do this, the only reason we can treat people better than they deserve, is because we have been treated by our master at the table infinitely better than we deserved. And you realize, don't you, that, that every sin, if you think about it, every single sin is a betrayal. Every single sin is a personal betrayal against Jesus. Every time you love something, prefer something, desire something, live for something over him, above him, you are turning your back on the one who has been good to you. And scurrying off to the chief priests. There is a little Judas, a little sneaky Judas lurking in all of our hearts. And yet Jesus loves us anyway. Verse 20 It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Remember that phrase one who dips bread. Into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. Jesus is here identifying himself not only as the Son of Man, but also as the Son of David, the long awaited king. How do we know that? I see the word Son of Man. I don't see the word Son of David. Well, we know that because he's invoking words from a psalm of David, Psalm 41, which was our scripture reading earlier. A thousand years before this scene in the upper room, King David had cried out to the Lord in desperation, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. That's what Jesus is alluding to. Judas is not just selling out any old guy. He's not just selling out any old random buddy. He's committing treachery against the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, which means Judas is functioning like the seed of the serpent. In fact, besides Satan himself, you will not find in all your Bible a darker character than Judas Iscariot because no one else, no one else stoop so low, so as to initiate, to plot and to initiate from the inner circle, treachery, premeditated treason against the King of Kings. The planning, the prophecy, and finally the picture. Those of you who have uh, done a Seder meal before are aware of this, a, pa- a Passover Seder meal. Uh, but the, the Passover is punctuated by four cups of wine that, are, that, are, um, that you drink throughout the meal. And in between each cup, uh, there, there's time to talk and fellowship and eat. But at certain times, the presider stands up with a script, a script that's been used for centuries. And at the moment when he's retelling the story of the Exodus, you just have to imagine this, there, Jerusalem is filled with people. That's why it was a logistical challenge to find a guest room for them to take the Passover. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in, I think, the year eighty sixty, 60 there were 2.2 million Jews in Jerusalem that one year. So you have to just imagine uh, hundreds of thousands of homes, with the head of the household, the presider, sharing from this same script. And at the moment when he's retelling the story of the Exodus, remembering Israel's slavery in Egypt, he takes the unleavened bread and he says, quoting from Deuteronomy, this is the bread of our affliction. That's the script. This is the bread of our forefathers and foremothers, when they were enslaved in Egypt. This is the bread of our affliction. But Jesus, at this point, does another shocking thing. He departs from the script. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Not This is the bread of our affliction as Jews, but this is the bread of my affliction as your Messiah. Because just as our forefathers, Jesus is saying, needed rescue from the tyranny of Pharaoh, I have come to bring an even greater rescue, a new exodus from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death. By changing the script and saying that the broken bread pictures what's going to happen to his own body, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, but here's the deal. In order for you to be fed, I have to die. And not only do I have to die, you have to receive it. That's why he distributes the bread and then says, take it, take it. This is my body. He he doesn't just distribute it and look around the table and say, please, if you would do me a favor, note its existence. Look at it. Study it. If you could really do this for me, hold it. No. No. He says, feast on it. Friends, we know this intuitively. You can, be, you can be sitting 10 inches from the greatest meal in the world that has been prepared for you. But if you just stare at it, notice existence, study it, you will not receive the nourishment you need. You have to take it inside yourself. And Jesus says, you have to feed on me by faith, which is a way of saying you have to take me into yourself. You have to internalize, personalize my death in your place for sin. By the way, it's, it's worth observing given, let's just say, spirited conversations in church history, that there is no biblical reason to take Jesus here to be saying This is literally my body. How do we know that? Well, throughout his ministry, he's often made true claims about himself by deploying metaphor. He's a good teacher. He's an effective communicator. He says true things about himself through the medium of metaphor. I am the door. Doesn't mean he's a piece of wood. I am the vine. Doesn't mean he's a leafy substance this is my body, which is just a vivid way of saying this symbolizes, this represents my body. Take it and eat. Verse 23, then he took a cup. Remember I told you there are four cups in the meal? This is cup number three. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I've said before that it's, it's like your New Testament is hyperlinked, that you can kind of hover over a phrase and click on it and immediately be transported back to an Old Testament backdrop. This is a prime example. Jesus is not just riffing. He's not just improvising on the fly, making up these words. Oh, it might be nice to say this is my blood of the covenant. No, he's alluding to Exodus 24. Go ahead and turn there with me. Exodus 24, same book we were looking at earlier. Moses has received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and here's what happens. Look at verses 7 and 8. Exodus 24, verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, that is from the animal sacrifice, sprinkled it on the people and said what? this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now flip forward to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, later in the Old Testament, one of the so-called major prophets were, were now centuries after Moses, but still 700 years before Jesus, listen to this prophecy about a future righteous servant of God's people who will die in their place. Verse 11, Isaiah 53, 11, The Lord says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify what? Many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Why will this suffering servant be vindicated? Middle of verse 12, because he poured out, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of what? Many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now turn back to Mark 14, hyperlinking over. Listen again to what Jesus says. Mark 14, 24, this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, Exodus 24, which is poured out for many, Isaiah 53. And he's not just echoing the Hebrew scriptures, he's also reiterating his own words. Do you remember that load-bearing verse in Mark 10, 45? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to pour out his life as a ransom for what? Many, many. Jesus Christ is the better Moses, the ultimate suffering servant, the final ransom payment for sin, whose blood inaugurates a brand new covenant for the people of God. On the eve of his death, he's looking at his disciples and saying, just as Moses ratified the old covenant with the blood of an innocent substitute, an animal. So now I'm about to ratify a new covenant with the blood of another innocent substitute, the final innocent substitute, me. We've seen the bread. We've seen the wine. But what was the most important element in any Passover meal? What what was the main course? What did you spend all day preparing and cooking? the lamb Where's the lamb? Well, it's not just a mark thing. Friends, you will scan Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in vain to find any reference to a lamb on the table. And that's because the lamb was not on the table. The lamb was at the table. No wonder John the Baptist had said upon seeing him for the first time, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No wonder the Apostle Paul could later say what we heard in our call to worship at the beginning of the service, for Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. The Last Supper brings us face-to-face face with the white-hot center of the gospel, the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ. This is what he came for. Above all else, this is what he came for, and this is above all what he wants to be remembered for and to ensure that we, the people of the Lamb, never forget it. Never forget his death in our place to bring a new exodus he instituted this meal, this enacted drama as a lasting ordinance for his church. And friend, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet turned away from your sin, from your love affair with God's substitutes, false saviors and false masters that demand that you be broken for them, then this morning you can come to the one who says, hey, I am broken for you you can come to the one who on Good Friday was pinned up on that cross like a shameful, despicable, loathsome criminal. He absorbed on the cross what we deserved. He absorbed, he exhausted the divine wrath that should have been poured out on us so that everyone who takes shelter under the blood of the lamb can be spared. And saved. Way back on the night of that first exodus, when the Lord was moving through Egypt in judgment, He was not looking at in, in, in each house for what we often kind of assume He probably was. What was the Lord looking for as He rushed through the land of Egypt in judgment? He was not looking inside of each house to see who in there was worthy. He was simply looking for blood on the door. He was simply looking for homes that were trusting his promise, relying on his word, sheltering behind the blood of the lamb. Oh friend, you're not worthy, I'm not worthy, no one you've ever met is worthy, but the blood of the lamb can shelter you. Look to him, trust in him, rest in him, find refuge in him, find refuge from his justice under the covering of his grace. And if you wanna hear more about what that means for your life, and by the way, that's a decision you can make today, that's a a life change that can be made today today, You can be made brand new by the power of the Holy Spirit today. If you want to find out more about that, talk to me at the door after the service. Talk to the person who invited you this morning. This room is filled with people whose lives have been turned upside down for the better, transformed by the message of this grace. Well, in verse 25, Jesus stands and he lifts the fourth and final cup. But in one final twist, He doesn't drink it. Verse 25 Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In other words, he's saying, I want you to remember my death. That's what this is all about. I want you to remember my death in in the new and greater exodus. That I am leading, but I also want you to remember our reunion, our reunion in the new Jerusalem. Implication, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. We have a reunion on the calendar, even here at the Last Supper, under the glare of Judas, Under the gathering shadows of Gethsemane and Golgotha, Jesus is looking beyond his death. And with the surety of one who is presiding not just over a Passover, but over God's entire plan, he calmly announces the next meal on the divine agenda, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And beloved, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are not just looking backward to his death. We are also looking forward to his grand return and that grand reunion, that feast when we will eat and drink and be satisfied in him forever and ever, amen. I once heard Ligan Duncan, who's gonna preach for us here next year, uh, make this observation. In fact, it's something we should think about every time we come to the Lord's table. Because what does Christ say to us at the table as he presides over it and invites us to it? What does he say? Take and eat. Take and eat. Remember the introduction of the sermon? the first meal in the Bible, the last time we heard those words, things didn't go so well. Eve took and she ate. And it's like Jesus shows up on the scene in the fullness of time and says, watch this, Satan. Watch this reversal. See, don't you see, it took God sending his only son into the world and for Jesus to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross for take and eat to become verbs of grace. And it is to his table we now get to come to feed on him, to feast on him by faith, the table that invites beggars Everyone in this room is a spiritual beggar, a table that invites beggars to come empty and leave full. Let's pray.